You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Lamgoat presents the Van Flip Podcast. Welcome to the Van Flip Podcast. I'm lucky enough to sit down with Bobby Blitz from the American Thrash Groove Metal Band, longtime Groove Thrash Metal Band, Overkill. Uh, we are glad to have you on the podcast, Bobby. How are you doing? Hey, great to be here, man. Uh, starting to celebrate the spring, uh, celebrating a new record. Uh, celebrating a new tour. I mean, things are looking up, so uh, it's good to be promoting something that's, uh, let's say, uh, viable in the current day. Yeah, that's good. And for being around so you know for so many years, it's it's a testament to how how long you guys have been able to rise above and keep moving forward. Bro, I, I do this thing on stage every now and then where I come out like this. I come out and I go bare knuckles. <laughs> When's the last time Grandpa kicked your fucking ass? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not saying that you're a grandpa or anything like that personally, but you know you guys have uh, managed to, you know, you started in the '80s, I think 1980, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But you've been kicking it since then, and you know, just being a purveyor of thrash metal music and, and setting or uh, pushing the bounds and pushing the limits of that. So congratulations on all that. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's quite an accomplishment. I never, you know, I never thought that, you know, the journey was going to be this long, but. I suppose part of that is that I enjoyed the journey. So you kind of, you, you know, it's it's one piece after another, or one step after another that takes you down this road where all of a sudden it's almost forty fucking years, and you say to yourself, "This is absolutely insane." Yeah. You know, but it was because of enjoying the, you know, those individual segments of the journey all the way, you know, all the way through and all the stories that you have and all, you know, listen, I've been working in motorcycle boots and Levi's for, you know, since, since 1985. So that's a good thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. No corporate, no corporate attire for you. <laughs> I own a suit, but it's for, it's for bad occasions. If it's you know for the I mean. award shows too. You know, you got to go to the Grammys or the award shows over the years. <laughs> Voted by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, right. Who is this, this douchebag? <laughs> right before we hopped on the podcast, you were going to let me know about the vases behind your head. So, if you're watching on the uh, video, there's two oh, yeah. vases on I either side of Bobby. Uh, I got them in Canada. They're, when I was on the road, um, you know, let's make it real. I was grabbing them off the, the mantelpiece here. Lava vase. You can hear it. You can kind of see it there. Oh, yeah. It's called lava vase. But it's made from the rubble. The original ones were made from the rubble of the Second World War in Germany. It was part of the Marshall Plan uh, to clean up, you know, the, the destroyed cities. Mm -hmm. and, and somebody came up with this idea of melting down the rubble, and they found old Luftwaffe bomb molds that were still that were still yikes yeah and they made vases out of it. so this this one is actually not uh just post-world war ii dated it's uh it's more from the 60s it's got kind of a psychedelic vibe to it but it carried on from that but I, that's one of the things that we're talking about the journey that i collected along the way it's not <clears throat> like i'm a huge art collector but when i see something where i'm like wow that's weird you know i pick that up what are some other things in your collection that you've gotten along the travels, along the many, many years that you guys have been touring? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the simplicity stuff. You know, T-shirts from other bands. Right, right, right. Our own T-shirts. Um, I have a couple of art pictures around. I mean, I have, like, I got something from a guy who does metal art. Um, there's the elegant lady on my male piece. Um, that's the Day of the Dead from from Mexico, nice. but it's done in clay. It's not done in a paper mache. 
So, I mean, I don't have like a ton of stuff, but the stuff I have is kind of really important to me because there's a memory attached to it. Like these, these vases were from Canada from a show um, up in Toronto uh, that we did. Uh, the elegant lady is from Monterey, Mexico. So, I mean, they're, they're attached to those memories that we were talking about earlier or that journey. Mm -hmm. You know, that when I look at that, I don't just see the elegant lady. I see, oh, Monterey, Mexico. I was down there for a couple of extra days. I met some friends. Just a good time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what is your favorite? Uh, I mean, you probably can't even think about it or, or recall it because there's been so many tours but ha do you have a favorite tour over the years that you kind of look back fondly on or they just all kind of blend together at this point well there's there's you know there's one i mean you know you don't get into this kind of music unless you're a fan of this kind of music you know and, and obviously the band is named overkill so i mean you could you connect us somewhere in there to motorhead you know we weren't right. we weren't that original band that came out and was was like all of a sudden we were struck by lightning and, and we were writing stuff that was going to be the next scene. You know, we were a cover band and we were playing Motorhead and we were playing some heavy metal. And in 1988, we did a tour where we opened and then Motorhead was second and then Slayer uh, mm. closed, which was a, just a great three prong attack. But years later, um, and Motorhead always, always. I'm not going to say kept in touch with us, but were always cordial to us wherever we ran into them out in the road. And these guys were idols of mine, you know. I mean, of when course. I when I was a kid, I mean, and sometimes you don't want to meet your idols because you're like, geez, I'm going to meet this fucking guy. I'm going to come home if he's an asshole. I'm going to break all the fucking records today. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. But you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, it's just, but it, that wasn't the truth with them. The truth was that they, they were ten times cooler than I even thought they could have. So they get to us, and, and uh, we get a tour back in the uh, somewhere around 2007. And uh, so it's through Germany. It's Motorhead, and we're direct support to them at this point. Well, in any case, it's the last show in Berlin. And I get this message from Big E, our light comes into the dressing room. It's like, Bobby Lemmy wants to go talk to you. And so I go down to his dressing room, and he gives me a drink, and we're talking. He goes, I want you to sing, I want you to sing Overkill with me tonight. And I was like, how fucking great is this? You know, this is going to be one of the memories of a lifetime. Yeah. I know this cold, but the point is, is that I'm afraid I'm going to mess up because it's a duet. I'm going to mess up the lyrics. So I write, you know, each, each on the, my forearm, I got the first word of each verse <laughs> like this. And he's going to me, he goes, we got to sing it the same mic. I'm like, okay. So as I'm singing, I'm glancing down to the first word. So I don't fuck it up. Right. And he, he fucking calls me out for cheat notes. In front of twelve thousand in Berlin, it's got cheat notes. So that was quite a memory. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a lot of uh, anxiety at one point there, just at one time coming flooding in. How is it like? Because I mean, you again for having such a long career and, and interacting with so many, I guess uh, if you want to call them legends, whether it's in thrash or metal in general. Because you just talked about you know sharing the stage with Lemmy, playing with Motorhead, and also in the same show playing with Slayer. I mean. What's it been like to just share the stages with so many, like, uh, you know, at the time it may not have been huge, but now obviously as we've progressed and as bands have gone on and some people have obviously uh, passed away, like Lemmy and other acts that you pro or other people that you probably shared the stage with. But, like, looking back on it, do you ever think, like, wow, I'm fucking beyond lucky to have been at the right spot at the right time in your career starting Overkill and within that you know, genre of thrash. Like, do you ever just think back? I was just like, wow, I'm fucking lucky for all that. I mean, that's a great take on it. I mean, you know, of, of course I do. And, but I think that, you know, as time passes, um, it obviously becomes even more exaggerated in my head. Uh, <laughs> but the, I mean, and that's just being honest. No, you know? of course. I mean, it, but, the, but when it was happening, it was huge too. But I, I can tell you, there was always one thing, and I attribute this, uh, to any success that this band has, has has had over the years is that there's the intimidation factor should never ever be there. Like if like you're a young band, I mean just remember this: if you're playing with somebody that you think is just the fucking shit, it doesn't matter when you when you're if your stage time is thirty minutes, forty five minutes, ninety minutes, whatever your stage time is, that's your stage. It doesn't matter who precedes you or who follows you, mm. and how much you want to go have a couple beers with them after. And that you can attribute to one of the, I don't know, the six degrees of longevity. 
to be able to say, hey, at this time, this is mine. I don't give a fuck who you are. <laughs> <laughs> you want to watch it, that's fine, because I'm going to show you how it's done. And I think if you have that attitude, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of ego to be able to present this to people. You know, I mean, yeah. if you, or, or, or you can feed yourself to the sharks, you know, one or the other. So, so I think that that's one of the, the most important things I took out of all of that meeting people that I admired over the years, that it was still my stage, our stage at this time. So just, I think some good advice to give to the youngsters. How, like, was that a mindset from the get-go or is that something you kind of learned after maybe a year or a few years, like sharing the stage with a lot bigger acts that, uh, you know, not that the allure has worn off from sharing the stages with these guys, but that you kind of realize in your head, I can't let that get to me. I have to, or like we as a band have to, you know, set ourselves apart from all these acts and all these other bigger names. Is that something that you just over time, you guys as a band or are you personally just kind of like had that mindset set in or is that from the get go? You guys were coming out fucking shit up. Hey, what's up? It's Lurk. Looks like you're enjoying the podcast. If you are and you like what we're doing here on the Van Flip, why don't you go ahead and pause this and give us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to. If you want to find out any information on your favorite bands from the hardcore and metal scene, visit lambgoat.com. And to stay in the loop about everything that we post on lambgoat.com, make sure you like us on Facebook and you head over to Twitter and Instagram and follow us at lambgoat. Are you a full-grown adult and you also have a TikTok account? Congrats. Follow us on TikTok as well. You can find us under the username lambgoat.com. That's spelled out D-O-T-C-O-M. Head over to our YouTube channel where we have all of these podcasts in video format plus a lot more content that you should check out. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and you hit that notification bell so you're always alerted when we upload new content. And last but not least, if you want to follow me, Lurk, the host of the show, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at LurkCity. And as always, if you need any of the links that pertain to the artists on the show today, Lambgoat or myself, you can always find them in the description. Thanks for listening to this message. Now let's get back to the show. No, no, I think it's learned. I think you're 100% right. I think it's learned. I, I, I don't think anybody can have that mindset, but I, I think it, it reveals itself, you know, very soon on, mm. you know. I did this, I, we had a, um, a really nice uh, a bunch of kids from Ireland, a band called Gamma Bomb, and we've got this kind of punky vibe, and we did a European tour with them, and I got along famously with the singer, you know. I'd be, he just liked the fact that I was an Irish-American, and I liked the fact that he was a prick, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, but we, you know, we, we, we got along famously, and, and he was admiring how I presented the stuff one night, you know, and you come off the stage, you're sweaty, you know, it's kind of like you come off, it's, your shirt's off, it's like, beat that, you know, that, that kind of, that's the attitude. Mm. He goes, you know, how do you do that? And I said, bro, you steal the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't create any of this shit. All I did was pay attention. <laughs> yeah. So, so even when it comes down to our stage for 45 minutes or whatever that time amount is, it's from, it's from observing and saying, look what they do. They own that fucking stage at this particular time. And I think all we did was adopt that and incorporate it into our own principles. That's interesting. That's a good, that's a good motto to have. Also, probably good information to share down to the younger, you know, the younger bands yeah. coming up. Because, again, you could get starstruck or, you know, starstruck, as you call it. But, you know, it is uh, for the younger guys out there. There's a lot going on, especially with social media and everything like that. You know, they, a lot of people are conscious of what they're doing, whether it's in real life, on stage, in their music. So it's probably good advice to just say, you know, screw it and just kind of be the wildest, best version of yourself slash band you can be. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I mean, it, it, it's a different era too. you know. I mean, when I started learning any of the principles that I carry to this day, obviously I've had to reinvent myself as technology has changed. You know, um, I, I don't want to call myself an absolute, you know, dolts when it comes to social media, but I really, I don't like the shit. You know, I mean, right. I, I don't need that shit in my life. I need it in my professional life uh, because I need to promote the band that I love so much. Uh, but I don't need to know who's taking a shit or who has a fucking stomach virus or any of that other crap. I get so, that. <clears throat> I'm I'm fine, you know, kind of, you know, kind of where I am. But my point is, is that the difference between, you know, the modern day uh, musical warrior um, who came from social media, you know, the the, you know, the 18 to 25 year old or 30 year old, mm -hmm. and the the old guy, is that I have both, and my social media was much different. It was you had to go face to face with somebody, you had to shake their hand. 
you know, you had to promote your band. Your social media was being at the club in Brooklyn on Friday and Saturday, having an open bar tab. You were never going to fucking pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Shane, drinking with Pete Steele from fucking Carnivore and later mm. Typo Negative. You know, so the point is, is that that's how we made our bones was sure some people didn't like it, but you still had to face them. And I think that that was, you know, the wealth of, you know, of self-confidence that comes from that. Because um, I don't think anybody has that self-confidence when they start, hmm. but it's acquired over time. And I think it's honestly, I think it's one of the things that's missing from the current day. And that makes me sound like grandpa. I know I went up to school. I went to school uphill both ways. Both ways, yeah. <laughs> all the way back, the whole fucking thing. But the point is, is that we had to do it. We had to. There was no, you know, besides, I mean, God, all the girls you need. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there was a lot of girls back in the you know the the 80s when cuz I always look back and you know when I cuz we cover hardcore and metal and everything kind of in between um and I always ask myself like how can hardcore like how can we make hardcore more uh you know accessible to everybody and how can we grow it and make it bigger and I have these discussions internally or with people that I meet uh you know like the differences between hardcore and metal and I guess for the longest time, I just kind of neg- didn't really think about it this way, but the 80s were so big for metal, huge for metal. And, you know, I, I guess because I was a younger guy, you know, I was born in the early 80s, 83. So, you know, you guys were already a band by the time I was, <clears throat> I was born and you were already doing thrash metal at that time. So, you know, from my birth, metal's been already a thing. And it's just one of those things where, like, I kind of didn't really remember or realize that it was so huge, you know, like it was hair metal was even a thing. Like that was a big quote unquote pop, you know, pop thing too. Like hair metal became big twisted sister and bands like that. It was all over like MTV at the time and, and this out of the other. And so I always am astounded that metal was so big back in the day. And then you know, it's not as, I mean, it is big now, but it's not as, like, mainstream big. Or at least, I should say, like, the more underground band, like, the, the right right underneath the mainstream level. You know, like, obviously, you still have huge bands like Metallica, and even Slipknot is up there now, too. So there are bigger metal bands out there that fall under the umbrella. But it was also crazy how big it was back then. And, you know, you guys were in the mix of all of that. You know, it's it, you bring up a great point, and and it, it hasn't gotten any smaller, no, and it no, no. hasn't gotten smaller because of the social media. So there is the positiveness of the change. Obviously, I'm not I'm not just living in the past. You know, and you see some of those bands. They do an interview. Nobody understands me. Nobody understands my brilliance. I've been brilliant for four fucking decades. Why doesn't anybody understand? Because you've been saying you've been fucking brilliant for four fucking <laughs> decades, and nobody wants to take your fucking bullshit. It's really yeah. it's really what it's really what the thing is. But if you go back to, like, right after you were born, like in a 10-year period after that, one of the great things that started happening in New York, and it was a fucking weird experiment at first, because, like, there, there was a club called Lemoore, 1,700 people, right? And sometimes we could put 1,700 people in that club, and sometimes we couldn't. And that's just the way it was. So they started taking the, the thrash bands and sistering them up with the hardcore bands. So it was... Totally not uncommon to see overkill agnostic, oh, nice, overkill yeah. crumbs, mm-hmm. overkill leeway, you know, overkill mad bull. You know, this was like, you know, this was like the normal thing back then. Now, obviously, there were some growing pains. If you, if <laughs> yeah, you know. for sure. Yeah. The crowds obviously probably didn't get along as well. Yeah. But I think, you know, when the second wave of that hardcore kind of a thing came along, you know, and I was friends with. You know, I was friends with Bobby Hamble, and I was friends with Danny and Evan and, you know, and Billy and, and the guys in LOA, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like, I mean, I remember, I remember Evan saying to me, where are you playing tomorrow? You know, we just done a show at the Morse. So there was the hardcore crowd and the fucking metal crowd. We're in Philly. Oh, you're at the Trocadero. Wow, that's great. I said, I'll tell you what, you show up at five, I'll get, make sure you get on that fucking stage. So the point is is that we all kind of understood the value of how it morphed into something. 
that the hardcore guys were way closer to the thrash guys hmm. than the thrash guys imagined, and the thrash guys were way closer to the hardcore guys than they imagined. And it actually became almost a third morphed scene. So it was really unique. I mean, you were probably seven at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was not even into the you know heavy music or hardcore ex- for sure by then. And you know, to this day, to this day, I still have great relationships with these guys. I see Hamble every time I'm in fucking Florida. The guy's sitting on my bus. Nice. You know, so I mean, it's you know, I mean, it's it it was a unique time that uh, that spawned, let's say, a third scene from the mixing of two. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I mean. I don't know why I wouldn't imagine that you you know you cross paths with these guys because obviously you're you're playing the same venues around the same time that all this stuff is actually on the you know in the beginning infant stages you're you're all playing the same venues in New York and all the surrounding areas where all this quote unquote culture is starting you know and and it's crazy to see where it's come now because now we have you know genres that incorporate not only thrash and hardcore but together but they also incorporate little other bits where you know we have like crossover thrash and crossover hardcore and stuff like that what do you feel like do you i mean because obviously you're a big part of the thrash uh movement back in the day what what is that like when you see thrash just creep into these other genres not just hardcore but other you know it's influenced so much at this particular point does that make you you know look back fondly on like with the work that you put in or do you hate it like get off my lawn <laughs> No, not not get off my lawn. I, I mean, I, I take it as a compliment. I, I I think as as a death metal guy would take it as a compliment that it, it comes into the thrash bands. You know, I, you know, we, we did a song on the new record, and we're not really what you call a progressive thrash band. You know, so that's that's more technical. We've had a template that we've used, but we have a whole bunch of different influences. I mean, we go all the way back to hard rock. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a fucking song on this record called Wicked Place. That's just it's a big fat groove ride it's like it's like fog hat on steroids and meth you know what i mean it's just mm-hmm. it's just got a great feel to it but it comes from another era it comes from the past somewhere but there's um but there's a song called uh uh twist of the wick which is um it's just an old biker expression it's just Daniel, here's the wick you know yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> the bar. The bar. Twist that way. <laughs> so, but the um but it lends itself to you know, in some of the rhythms and and beats uh, to blast beats um, on the drums, which you could, you know, attribute to bands like Malevolent Creation uh-huh. out of Florida, or the Obituary Guys, or Cannibal. You know, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where you, you think to yourself, is it funny how it kind of all morphs together? And it's and it goes back to that Irish band that I told you. I said, just steal the good stuff, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's it's kind of I think it's a compliment or a homage to the value, for instance, of death metal, or hardcore, if that's what a thrash band was using, and vice versa, to, let's say, obituary using an absolute thrash riff. Yeah. Actually, we just had I, uh, we just had obituary last week on the podcast, so that, that was interesting. Uh, obviously, me being in Florida, I'm more, uh, more aware of, like, the death metal scene that, you know, popped up down here with death, and, you know, like you were saying, DSI, or you didn't see DSI, but, you know, DSI, Cannibal, and all those other bands. Um, so yeah, that was that was pretty fun to have them on the podcast and chat. Uh, before we get too far away from social media, I want to kind of like ask you a question because you guys are uh, you've been around for a longer period of time. Your audience has also been around. Well, some of your audience has been around for a longer period of time. You've obviously picked up new fans and a bigger fan base as you've gone on. But do you find that uh, like using social media like Facebook? Do you find like a lot of your audience on there is of the same? demographic age-wise as you guys or do you guys find that your social media lends itself to finding a newer younger you know reinvigorated audience well it's a combination i mean the, the youth brings in the energy you know and i've always been the first one to say i can't understand why a fucking guy my age is still playing around in something that you know was based on young man's angst mm. you know that <laughs> are you still angry at 64 get the fuck off my lawn yeah you know, it's just not it's not exactly the same but experience obviously speaks for something here, and experience in songwriting, and probably a purity of um, commitment to what it was then. Um, still trying to push the parameters, like for instance, on the record Scorch, to make mm-hmm. it better, to push it outward, to show all the influences on it. And I think that that's what attracts that youth uh, and keeps the, you know, the older, you know, more my age group guys and girls um, interested in it. 
you know, that it's their thing, which to me shows a fucking lot of value. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you can't, if it can't be disposable, like hardcore is not a disposable um, genre. Uh, thrash metal is not a disposable genre. They can't just throw it away. You, know, you mentioned hair metal, and the hair metal's finally kind of coming back, but that hair is all gray. You know, and it, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, <laughs> well, you follow me, right? And yeah, it's yeah. not a bad thing. Some great hits, but I think the point is, is that when it gets passed on from generation to generation, that value only increases. And I, I remember I was I was in Germany. I was I was coming across a field that was all it was all muddy. It was a festival uh, called Van um, Head. It's in Balling, Germany. It holds about twenty thousand people. Just a fucking great festival. And I was going to see the fan club, or actually, I'm like stuff right here. There you go. Oh yeah, Skull Crushers. And, uh, I was going to see the fan club, or and and check on some T-shirts. A deal I was doing with this dude, right? And walk across, and there's just like three generations standing there. So there's grandpa, there's the father and the mother, and there's the little girl. Okay, and the little girl's about six. And I was married to a Dutch woman at the time, <clears throat> and and she says to me in perfect Dutch, "You're my favorite singer." You know what I mean? And I answer her back in Dutch. Okay. Hmm. Now the chick is fucking the six-year-old is like she's she doesn't even know what to do that this American guy is actually talk to her in her own native tongue. And now the grandfather's handing me the kid, and I'm like, hold me. <laughs> We're taking pictures. The impact of that particular moment, I'm sure, is lifelong, the lasting of it. Yeah. And that's because the value and the principles of the band that the grandfather passed to the son who passed to his daughter. And I think that that's where that youth invigorates, obviously not six-year-olds, but the right. youth of uh, the metal youth invigorate, let's say, our fan base with, uh, with let's say, fresh energy. Yeah. And I mean that, you know, whatever the formula is that you guys are using obviously clearly works as you've been able to, um, you know, stretch a career out over 40 years. So, you know, kudos to that hat tips to you all for being able to because a lot of bands, you know, only wish they could even have half of that, even like one fourth of that kind of career. So, you know, that's a that's a testament. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of like nuclear cockroaches, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> get rid of them. You know, they drop the bomb, and then like a half hour later, they all come like yeah. crawling out. <laughs> God, I thought I got rid of those guys. Now they're still they're still pumping out albums. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, you guys pump out albums. I mean, that's something that you guys you know are very good at. For being around forty ish years, you guys have almost released an album every two years. You know, give or take a year or two, because uh, you this is scorched which you know is coming out in next month and three weeks from today obviously maybe by the time this podcast is out it's already out but um april uh 14th right i believe it's the 14th uh 14th of april um we start the european tour on the 13th now obviously there'll be some singles out prior to that and they'll be contained in the set there'll be a, a production video for the title track uh a song wicked place uh the song the surgeon you know, kind of weird. I, I remember doing this record, and, and you're saying like every two years, and that's true. And this was the longest removed time. This was actually four years mm -hmm. between records. You know, we had COVID was, and everything uh, too, but 19. Yeah, yeah. So, so now April 23. But it was. Um, I think the record shows that benefit or that luxury of time. Um, and I, I say that because it was written under the, you know, the shittiest of circumstances. And there's something about shitty circumstances that make fresh records you know and it's not because you want to embrace the shittiness of it or that particular time you want to push back against the shittiness you know there's something about this that is like you know i'm not trying to, to, to well to quote it to quote a great air rocker we're not going to take it right you know yeah and the point is is that that is a you know that could be a thrash moniker you know that kind of a, a statement that you push back against things it's not about negative energy necessarily, it's about positive energy. And I remember writing this record on my part of it during Peter Pandemic and all of his fucking fucking heroes there that were, you know, had us all locked up and locked down and fucking sideways and fucking yeah. and I was like, I, I found myself fucking calling the liquor store ordering three cases of beer at a time because I was afraid the fucking New Jersey governor would close the fucking place. Now what the fuck am I gonna do? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean I was like sick thinking, you know. Well, in any case, I started pushing back against the pushback. And I think that that is the results of this record. And if you have a song like The Surgeon, it's not about being told what to do. It's about bloodletting, and it's about pushing back against, 
you know, the ridiculousness sometimes of what the authority says. That, and if you can say that at my fucking age and be able to recognize it, there's something special in this shit. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to say, okay, it took four years to do this record. But it took four years to get this record right, as opposed to being submitting to that shitty time that it was written in. Yeah, interesting. Um, did you, um, so you, I mean, I don't really want to dive into COVID time because I've obviously spent a long period of time during that time talking about it with bands, but it sounds like you weren't, uh, super excited to be, uh, maybe in New Jersey lockdown all the time. Cause here I, you know, I experienced it a different, a different, uh, a different scenario in general. Cause I lived in Florida. So we, we were pretty much open pretty much after like the first three, four weeks, but you know, and it was just a life as somewhat normal, but sounds like a lot of that angst and a lot of that, uh, you know, aggressiveness helped out because like you were saying, like it's hard to be at your age to be that guy. That's always, you know, angsty and have that, you know, younger man's angst. So maybe it was a benefit, you know? Well, it's a, it was a benefit with regard to writing because it was a place to go. That was normal in, in an abnormal, normal type time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the thing I've known since, you know, those years that we've been talking about since the 80s that I could go to that demo. You know, I mean, we were shut down March 12th, 2020 in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, that was the last show. And we were on our way back to Jersey. And we got to Jersey. And then after fucking three months of this fucking bullshit, you know, you get like the governor on, you know, the governor's piling body stuff in the fucking in, in the fucking old age homes and, and stuff. Mm. And he's. He's speaking in terms of we. And I finally got to my to the point where I'm going, who the fuck is we? <laughs> I'm not part of we. Yeah. <laughs> we don't think this way. So I think somewhere in there, maybe the maybe the old rebel exists in, under the gray roof, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's and I think somewhere in there comes the validity of a record like Scorched. Not to say, hey, you're an idiot, um, you know, and, and this is a conspiracy theory and all this and that, but it was for sure a control situation. And it, it, we in Jersey were admiring Florida, saying, you know, because I'm calling a liquor store saying, are you shutting down? You know, can you get me a case of Heineken? <laughs> what am I going to do during May? Yeah. <laughs> you know? which, is, which is no way to fucking live, you know, and... You know, I mean, I feel for people. I know there was loss. And mm-hmm. I know there was there was hardship during it. I, I for sure know there was. But I think what, honestly, I think that we're a smart enough race of people, uh, the human race I'm speaking of, uh, to not put ourselves in dire straits <clears throat> or without the help of, <laughs> without the help of our totalitarian government during that yeah, particular time in our lives. It kind of felt so like that for the most of, part. That's kind of the way I feel about it. No, I get it. We and again, we don't have to harp on the converse or the topic of of that time because obviously it's probably been documented very extensively throughout, not just in the metal world, but all over. Uh, so let's. Well, I got results out of it. That's all I could say, and, I, and those results are in, in scorched. But that's a, that's personal, not not the uh, not the entire view of the world. Yeah. And uh, speak, touching back back on you know the new record and the records pri- previous to that, um, you know, like you were saying, was it harder in the albums prior, you know, leading up to it to find like aggressive inspiration, or is it easy for you just to look at common day everyday stuff and and find something that you're like you know that you don't agree with? Obviously, obviously, it's easy, but like to find inspiration through that stuff. <sighs> Like I, I think the prior record um, worked out for us because we had a, you know, we had a new member. Jason Bittner's first record with us was in 2019, and I mean the guy's a machine. You know, I mean he's just he's Mr. Drum. You know, so it's he thinks drums, he eats drums, he lives drums. You know, he sleeps drums. His girlfriend's a drum. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The whole thing. I, I'm joking, obviously. He's right. got a lovely wife, but I, you know, it's. Um, but he's a machine and he's a clock and he's so dependable and it was one of those situations where we were all excited over the fact that we had this new tool you know so i don't think it was that hard to to find inspiration for that record and i think the record actually turned out really well i think this one's better i think this one's a step uh away from that one but um but i think that you know to if we're opportunists if we've done this for as long as we've done it 
we search opportunity. That opportunity was Jason and a new record. If we could take that opportunity and make the most out of it, we're probably going to secure good results or something that we're satisfied with. So when I look at inspiration for the last record, I didn't think it was that hard. But this one was harder because of the circumstances. Mm. But that was turned around and became absolutely inspiring with regard to what the results were. Yeah, do you, do you think Scorched, uh, in your personal opinion, where would you rank Scorched with, and I know this is a hard question because you have such a, a long discography, not only a full length, but you know everything else, if you want to count everything else in the mix, but is Scorched, like, in your opinion, the most aggressive, your, maybe your favorite? Like, where do you, where do you rank that in, in the whole long list of you know, output from the band? I'm going right to smart assery. It's the best thing since canned beer, and you heard it here first. Yeah, no, I get it. You got it. You gotta. You gotta sell it. You know. So I understand. I understand. I never, I never rate the new record. I can't. I just can't do it. I don't think it's fair. It's going to take a year for me to figure out where it, it fits. Um, I think that that's the only fair way to do it. I've been doing that since the beginning. It's just like, hey, is this new record the best you ever did? I'm like, listen, I'm not one of those douchebags. I'm the same asshole I was when I did the first record, so don't think I'm any smarter just because it's 20 <laughs> records. <laughs> yeah. I just have more experience, so I won't rate it. But um, I do think The Wings of War is probably, and that's the last record. I think that's, if we've done 20 records, it's it's got to be somewhere around number 11 or number 12, which is a which is a good shot for it. Does yeah. this one have a chance of beating that? I think it has a chance, but I'll have to tell you in a year. Yeah, all right, I get that. Maybe we'll touch base in a year, and we'll we'll find that answer out. Um, you mentioned a template earlier. What um, without you know selling the secret sauce for what what Overkill uses you know to maintain its trajectory and, and dominance? What could you explain what that template is in some form for maybe like you know younger bands or bands that are established that maybe want to adapt to that? Well, obviously there's a formula, and, and that formula is performance, uh, songwriting slash performance. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you had to si simplify it, um, it's action versus reaction. Uh, if you create an action, uh, you create energy. What is the reaction to what you've just created, and how does it make you feel? And I think that that's where I know that template's correct with what my part of the, of the writing, whether that be the, the melody, whether that be the, the lyrical content, uh, whether that be the hook um, in the chorus. Uh, I always think of it as action versus reaction. Now, the template that we started, let's say back in the 80s, we've constantly tried to, to move those parameters outwards, you know, to try to go parallel, to try to, to do tangents uh, to go perpendicular, to try to raise the bar for ourselves. So even though the template started, you know, decades ago, the template itself has changed mm. over the years. And I think that that's necessary because it becomes a reinvention of what was its beginnings or its origins. So it holds some of that uh, truth of origin to it, but has gone other places over all these years. So you can't just stop progressing. You have to be able to progress. You can't just constantly rewrite the same song build you know, you know bricks are, are brick houses are so strong because they're exactly the fucking same you can stack them but it's not that fucking interesting if you know what i mean yeah i mean it's just a brick fucking house so you, you have to be able to think out of the box with that template i think that that's i think that that's more our approach than than uh, repetition interesting yeah that's good that's uh good information um do you, you know, obviously you guys tour often and you, again, I, I keep, I hate, I keep harping on it, but you guys, obviously like this is, you guys are probably one of the longest running bands that we've had on the podcast. So I have a lot of, you know, longevity type questions. So I apologize, but do you and Didi ever just like sit on the bus or in the studio or whenever you're hanging out and just kind of have like these moments where you look at each other and just go like, what the fuck, man? How could you say that? I'm sitting right here. No, I just say, you know what I mean? Like, how do you just, because like, obviously when you started, I mean, I don't know what your goal was when you started the band in 1980, you know, was it just like, was it just for funds or did you have an idea where you're like, fuck it, we're going to actually be a, a signed band. We're going to do this full time. But obviously back in the day, you didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't fathom that, you know, 
40 something years later you're still doing it so there's got to be times and there's got to be moments where whether it's after a show after a release or after these monumental you know moments in a band's history where you you know Dee Dee's the only one that's kind of shared that time with you for the entire time so yeah. same right yeah yeah so you know you gotta I would assume every now and then you gotta look at each other and just be like holy shit man what like where what what do we what do we do what do we get into <laughs> You're out of your fucking mind. You know, I, I think that we've made it interesting for ourselves. I, I think you could find this answer in a lot of the shit I said prior. I, I think it is about reinvention over over the course of years. You know, if you can enjoy the journey, if you, if you don't think that there's a pot of gold at the end of your fucking journey, you're enjoying the journey. Mm -hmm. You know, each, each step becomes a jewel that you collect, you know. Um, but I think that what we did that actually made it work for us was that the harder it got, the more we dug in first. Because I, I just think that that's a tenacity. But we paid attention from early on. I mean, we've been involved in our own production since the first records. You know, when we wanted co-production credits on our first release, you know, that it was co-produced by Overkill. And that's been the way it always has been. And then we had these great managers step in. The club I mentioned earlier, where I was drinking with Pete Steele, Lamore, these guys, these two brothers managed us with a guy who went on to Sony and did some great things with Whitney Houston after, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, three dudes managed us. They took White Lion to fucking platinum status. We play, paid attention to every fucking thing these guys did. When we had questions, they would, they would answer them, and they'd answer them honestly. And they put us on salaries when we shouldn't have been on salaries, just so that we could continue doing this because they yeah. believed in us. In any case, when the dark days of the 90s came, we were ready to manage ourselves. So there becomes the morph into a whole second, a whole second parallel to what we were doing. We were now the guys who ran the fucking business. We weren't these like creative minds, you know. We were the, you know, we were more like craftsmen. We weren't artists. And now we're managing the fucking band. We're making all the decisions. So when you look at this band now, this many years later, all the work is done from this this room and Dee Dee's room and my office, and every T-shirt goes across my desk and. Every crew guy goes across, and the salaries are done here, and blah, 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 all that shit. So all the work is done prior. Then we go out the fucking road. It's fucking middle-aged boys club, man. I mean, there's dice being thrown. Somebody's got cigars. You know, somebody's brought fucking 12-year-old bourbon. It's going to be a fucking good time. Yeah. So we, you can't, like, look at it. You know, we're not never out there for six weeks at a time anymore. So if we're out there for three weeks, it can be, it can be like a vacation. So I, I don't think we've ever looked at each other like, oh, what are we doing? This is ridiculous. That said, if you get sick, fuck it. You just want to be home in your own bed. Yeah. And I, Why is this been a good run? And I wasn't, I wasn't prefacing the question like that. I should probably clarify. It was more of like an astounding, like, what the hell, man? Because like, you know, it's like you said, it's been a long ride and it's just, you know, I'm, I'm assuming sometimes you just got to have like, you know, you look over and you're just like, wow, man. You know, like, who would have thought, you know? <laughs> Hey, who are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you were. I want to touch base, and you don't have to, you know, go super deep into it. But it's something you brought up. Uh, you were saying that the record label puts you guys on salary. Uh, I just don't know if you want to elaborate on that a little bit or, or whatnot. Like, obviously, uh, it was enough, or it, it allotted you guys to do more music rather than worry about how to pay bills. So, you know, well, it wasn't a record label. It was our management. Management. All right, sorry. Uh, so, I mean, they, they made sure that they pulled whatever they got, and instead of us getting these huge chunks of it, I mean, we knew what was going on with it, but we could, you know, we could take like a monthly salary back mm -hmm. then. I mean, we were, we were a band on our second record, and they were making sure that we were getting paid. Okay. You know, that we could, that they believed in us enough to make sure that even if we had run out of the money that we had taken with regard to advance, that they would adv advance on the next advance so that we could pay those bills back from the early days. And that was, I mean, that is just, I mean, that's priceless, you know, because sure, I mean, I had to work a job here and there. I mean, I'm putting ceiling fans, I painted houses, mm. you know, the whole thing, but it didn't have to do it all the time. And I could leave that job to go on the road, you know, because I had that other money that I could depend on to pay my rent or my car insurance or whatever. Interesting. And you brought up another thing within that little uh, segment about the 90s and the dark days. Was that more, uh, was that because of the grunge movement and the alternative movement kind of taking such a uh, stranglehold in like the radio airwaves and MTV and stuff? Yeah, 
I think there was, you know, there was a new, you know, there was a new wave of youth, you know, um, you know, they smoked like teen spirit. I mean, it's just the way it was, you know, I mean, and you have, you know, you, I mean, you got to tip your hat to them. I mean, they, they changed the world. I mean, without a doubt. Um, it was the, the antithesis. If we were the antithesis of hair metal, um, that whole scene was the antithesis of us, you know, I mean, th there always seemed to be a huge amount of, of positive aggression and thrash to me. And it didn't seem like that, you know, that next wave carried that. Uh, it carried a great musicality to it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Big Soundgarden fan. I fucking love that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I didn't like all of the shit that that whole scene did, but some of the bands are just amazing. But I think that, you know, it forced, it forced uh, the thrash scene back to the underground. I mean, we were being distributed by Atlantic Records at that point. Yeah. Um, and actually on them for a few, for a few records. And that's like, Boy, that's like the worldwide musical promotion machine of excess. You yeah. know what I mean? Somebody asked me, how were the cocaine days? I said, I really didn't get to experience it, you know, any of that. <laughs> but you knew it was there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You got guys, you know, you're meeting guys with pinky rings. Yeah. <laughs> Long fingernails, you know? But the, uh, but I think that if it forced us back to the underground, it forced bands like us, especially at the lower level bands, you know, not the bigger tier, we're obviously a second tier, um, force us back into purity, you know, and I think that a lot of, in those dark days, a, a lot of people didn't pay attention to shit like management. Uh, we could, we cut our expenses by 20% right there, which is right off the top from mm -hmm, our management. Mm -hmm. saying, we're going to do it from now on, and we're going to figure this out. So I'm always proud of the fact that when it was hardest to do, um, we were prepared to give it a run, to give it a shot. Uh, we found deals, we found record companies that would invest in the value that we thought we had in ourselves, that they thought that we had in ourselves, that could give us great fucking advances to make great fucking records and tour the world still. Hmm. You know, so, you know, we didn't go home and live in our parents' basements and wonder why nobody appreciated our fucking genius, you know, and and, and we just kept going. And I, and, I, and I always think of it as like, you know, what you know? What's the measure of the man? When it's easy or when it's hard? You know. So, so I always think of that as something as a defining moment for Didi and myself and the band. Interesting. And it, you know, it, and again, this could be something that's just learned over the years. But you guys sound like you're, or at least you, Bobby, sound like you're very humble about it. Um, like, is that something that you've always been? Like, you're just a humble kind of guy, or have you been humbled over the years because you know you've had such an not an up and down, but just a, just a long career. So you've seen oh, a lot. I'm second generation Irish Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had great uncles. You know what they told me? Work fucking hard. You keep your fucking mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't let them know all your secrets. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I'm not Irish Catholic, but I grew I, up French I Catholic. Uh, you know, I think it's upbringing. I can tell you. Um, uh, Didi and I, uh, I met Didi in, in 80. I met his, his wife the next day, who was his girlfriend who he's still married to, you know, oh, this, congratulations. this um, which, which, which speaks volumes for commitment. Um, and I'm not saying, Hey, they should get accolades for it. I mean, it worked out because they're those kind of people. Um, and it works out for the band because we're those kind of people. Um, this is the way, and, and his wife has done some great things and, you know, I'm still great friends with both of them, you know? And, and we were talking one day, she would come on the road and we were talking and she goes, you know, why it works with you too is, you have exactly the same backgrounds. You know, he has the second generation Italian, you have the second generation Irish, and you got big families, and you always put the families before anything else. So when that is all taken care of, the band takes care of itself. It's not about, oh, if I don't get this, the fucking world's going to end. Yeah. You got to make sure people are okay, you know? So I think that with that being said, it's become the foundation for why that longevity happens, you know? I mean, I'm, listen, I've gone through a couple of divorces. I'm not the fucking, the fucking poster child for commitment. But when it comes to the fucking band, when it comes to the fucking band, I for sure am that poster child. Mm. And that is, I think, because, as she said, my upbringing. Interesting, yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, you know, the long... What is the change... What's changed the most, you know, in, I guess, thrash over the years? Which is, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it was funny because, you know, we talked just a minute about those dark days, but when it started becoming healthy again, um, uh, you know, 
first decade of 2000, or toward the end of that, you know, let's say seven, eight, nine, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. could just see it was becoming healthy. It was getting an influx of youth. Um, and the youthful bands that showed up during that era were playing the template that was created by bands in the thrash era in the 80s. You know, the Metallicas, the Anthraxes, the, the Megadeths, mm-hmm. Slayer, you know. Uh, I'm not saying there were copies, but there were that template, overkill templates, you know. Um, and I was I was a little surprised that it was going to be a repeat. I was I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be they were going to take it to a, a different level, and I think it took them a little bit of time, but I think it did happen that there are st- they did start taking it to a different level. It started adding you know progressive um, influences to it. Started taking it to a more complex type of a presentation and and writing. But uh, when it first came back, I didn't think it was it was a hell of a lot different than than what I had experienced only you know fifteen years, twenty years before that. Do you feel like with um, the ease of access, like streaming services and just the internet in general, with you know people being able to share you know their interest and their stuff that they like in an easier fashion, do you feel like there will be? more dark days going forward or do you think that because it's so accessible and because there's easy ways to share things that you know things may pop up that become popular whether it's in the mainstream or not that still like these audiences will always kind of have this little environment where they can just kind of you know come together on or they'll always be able to reference that or or you know they'll always be able to listen to you on xxx platform or something like that no matter what you know, like K-pop becomes the new biggest thing in America. It doesn't matter because, you know, these little genres still have these little audiences that are just kind of like hell-bent on listening to it. You know, I don't know if Overkill would exist if we were, uh, you know, 25 years after that or, you know, 20 or 15. You know, if we were in the, you know, the, the first, the first, phase and wave of technology it was a great promotional tool you know and then all of a sudden the downloads started happening and then the file sharing started happening mm-hmm, it became mm-hmm. a different world i think overkill exists because we came from those days of excess in the 80s or at least the end of that so we had that promotion platform to stand on prior to all these changes i think it's very hard for a younger band right now uh, to i'm not to say to be talented but to be able to get the recognition that they deserve based mm. on what they've put into it because of how crowded the field is. Yeah. I mean, you can you can make a great record in your basement, in your bathroom, you know, in the living room, as long as you have the technology to do so, you know, and you can put it out amongst all the other ones, you know, and we're not talking hundreds, we're talking thousands, yeah. maybe thousands of songs, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe 50,000 songs. Whereas back then, you know, I'm not going to say it was a beatdown, but it was like you beat down the other bands. You wanted to beat them. This is my fucking stage. This is my promotional moment. This is my fucking tour. You know, maybe a little bit greedy and selfish, but but for the point of, you know, self-advancement for something you love. I think it's really hard to see that in, in the current day. I mean, I, I applaud them. I mean, for trying. And there's some great shit out there. I mean, don't get me wrong. And there's... You know, there's, I, I know the guys over in Wacken, Germany will always do like, you know, an unsigned band contest based on, yeah. you know, how many hits they get and how many times their songs are streamed or something. And they fly them over there, you know, 19 year olds standing in front of 80,000 fucking people. I mean, that's fucking just beautiful, you know? Yeah. But um, I think it would be hard for us if, if we were one of those bands to, to be able to stand out amongst. You know, how do you stand out amongst the, you know, the crowd? Yeah, no, I get that. And I think about that all the time. But I also think about that referring back to the days, you know, the early days, too. Like, whether it's the Beatles or you guys or anything like that. Like, because they're, I don't want to say, I guess it was kind of like a a keeper of the gate, you know, the record labels, right? Like, the record labels, most, most people wouldn't know anything about anything that wasn't either on the radio or, you know, uh pressed on vinyl or something or cassette tape or eight track at the, at those times so i always wonder like what other bands were around when like the beatles or, or you guys like clearly there's a lot of bands that never even made it to the first uh, the you know the second tier or the or the, the third step or the second step or anything like that you know like 
where you say you guys were lucky you you early 80s you know you're signed you had you even got on major labels at some point so you know i, I think about all the bands that never even had a shot but may still have been good you know what i mean they may still have been good but they just never reached that that point and i flash forward to now those bands still compete you know or not those bands but new bands compete like you said on a battlefield that's just hundreds of thousands of songs you know and it's how do you set yourself apart which again you know luckily for you guys you have the the moniker and the and the career that comes along with all the new material but whew, it's got to be tough for a band that's just coming out you know and it, it all it all lands on your shoulders especially in the early days you have to push that you don't have the help of like a promotional company a label or anything like that there was, you know, I, I just a comment. I got to move on to another interview in sure. a couple of minutes, but I, I just want to comment on something that you said. And, and the difference is, you know, you know, when this shit happened for bands like us, it was the perfect fucking storm. That's what fucking happened. There was, it was being created simultaneously around the world in diff, on different continents and on different coasts. It was a New York area, New Jersey thing, playing with New York punk and. Uh, uh, new wave of British heavy metal and there was the fucking West Coast guys in the Bay Area and shit happening in Germany and the UK, blah, blah, blah. It's happening all over the fucking place. Well, the fucking, the whole fucking musical landscape changes when, when Metallica releases Kill em All, right? Mm. The whole fucking thing changes, right? Right there. It's like, holy shit, what the fuck is this? Didn't go to superstar events. But those fucking guys, all over Bay Area saying, we're this and that. So whatever you want, they still had to travel 3,000 fucking miles to the East Coast, to New Jersey, to have Megaforce Records <laughs> release that fucking record. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So the perfect storm again, and the perfect people to fucking pick it up, all right? So they come to New Jersey to get this fucking record done. They're living with friends of mine out here. They're doing shows in the fucking basement. Well, in any case, I'll tell you about those managers I had back at Brooklyn. They did a show at the Paramount Theater, right? They brought over Venom. It was Venom's first fucking appearance. And it was like 1982 or three came over here. And John Zazula, who ran Megaforce Records, mm-hmm. calls my manager of later on, George Parente, who owned Lemoore's, and says, I'm going to stop by the front of the Paramount. I'm going to blow the horn. You've got to come out and hear what I have here. Right? So Johnny pulls up in his fucking Jaguar, blows the horn. George comes out of the Paramount. They take a ride through Brooklyn. And John puts in... Um, no Life to Leather, the fucking uh, uh, demo. Mm-hmm. George goes, I heard it. He goes, but you haven't heard this. And he puts in the new tracks to kill them all, right? And George's mouth drops, right? Johnny's playing it on fucking 10. George's mouth drops. He loves telling the story. That's why I know it so well. Yeah. <laughs> and John Zazula looks at him. God rest his soul. He's pissed. Uh, and he goes, they will be playing stadium someday. Mark my fucking words. Yeah. That's why the whole thing worked, because people took that time to invest in it and to have the forethought to, to be able to look beyond what the moment was, but what the future could be. That's very interesting. And that, I mean, I'm sure you have a plethora of those stories one day we'll hopefully be able to get at. Uh, but like you, like you just said, I know you got, you're a busy guy. You're on the media presser for the new album. So again, congratulations on Scorched and the long, long career. And hopefully you have many more, 21 more albums and another 40 years to go in, in Overkill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, but I got to tell you, man, this was my most enjoyable interview the whole time because I love conversational stuff as opposed to yes, no, it took us three months. I get it. I, Took me six takes. <laughs> well, that's a that's a great compliment from you, Bobby. I appreciate it. And for that, you know, you're more than welcome anytime to come on, and we can have conversational talks because I'm sure you have, like I said, a plethora of stories, and I'd love to get at get those out of your head and on, you know, on the sure. internet. Yeah, we get some free time. I mean, just get in touch with Kristen, do like uh, a Saturday night together, and have a few have a few beers and a little bit of fun. I will hold you to that, Bobby. I'll do it. I'll, I'll do you my ending night. Uh, My name is Bobby Blitz, and I approve this fucking message. (laughs) Take it easy, man. Good seeing you, bro. Thank you. No problem. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time. A secular religion, if you will with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, 
host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.